0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another week of my podcast, the Stephen Sully Study. Uh, Dr. John Martini. this is, uh, it feels like a bit, bit of a uh, long time coming from uh, for me because even though you and I have not been speaking, I've heard your name time and time again over the years. And as I mentioned, a friend of mine called Rob Moore and a few others have, have interviewed you, including uh, Ellie. And... Um, I just felt like at some point our paths will cross, and I would love to get you on the podcast. So, thank you very much for agreeing, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: Thank you. I'm the one that's looking forward to it too. Thank you.
0: <laughs> so, um, human behavior expert, you're a guy who's read over thirty odd thousand books. You're an author to over forty books. You're a public speaker, entrepreneur, and you're a guy who's done pretty well for yourself. So where where should we start with those aspects, John? What do you think is the most relevant aspect to talk about first and foremost?
1: Well, you know your audience better than I do, so you might yeah, be wiser yeah. on that selection. But, you know, I'm, I'm just a guy that's for the last 50 plus years has been interested in learning and then sharing anything to do with maximizing human awareness and potential.
0: Yeah, yeah. Anything
1: to do with the mastery of life. And I I had a dream when I was, you know, 17 to travel the world and teach. I had a dream at 18 to help myself master my own life. And I define a mastered life as somebody that creates original ideas that serve humanity. You're using your genius and creativity, which we all have, and using it to do something that's contributive, to create a business that's global, to create financial independence. To create a global family dynamic, to create a global influence socially, to create a vital body that's still going—I'm sixty-nine almost—and uh, to be able to do something that's inspiring to somebody, not just for the sake of some altruistic cause, but because for something deeply meaningful. Anything to do with maximizing human potential, I've been interested in for since 1972, and that's mm-hmm. all I do: teach, research, write, and travel. I don't mm-hmm. have—I—I I don't have anything else to do because I've delegated everything else to specialists. So I haven't driven a car in 33 years. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I, I realize that if I don't fill my day with the highest priority actions that inspire me, my day is going to fill up with low priority distractions that don't. And one will raise my impact and the other one will not. So I've I prioritized my life, delegate to people who love doing the other stuff and free myself up and do what uh, I love doing, which is teach, research, and write.
0: Yeah. In a lot of your content, in a lot of your speeches, in a lot of your online videos, there's a a common theme. And um, I've heard you say a a few times, be authentic. What does being
1: authentic actually mean? Good, Good question. If we meet somebody and we look up to them and we admire or infatuate with them and put them on a pedestal, we'll tend to minimize ourselves in comparison by law of contrast. And when we minimize ourselves, we're not ourselves. And when we meet somebody we look down on and resent and think, oh my God, I don't like that. You know, resent that person, look down on them. We exaggerate ourselves and puff ourselves up. We're not authentic. But when we look across and have a bit of reflective awareness and introspect and realize our reactions to them is nothing more than our reactions to what we've got buried inside that we may not be owning and and have a bit more reflection. We level the playing field. We have equanimity within ourselves and equity between ourselves and others and have more sustainable, fair exchange relationships with people. And we're more authentic. We don't have to put on a facade. And we are way more powerful in influencing and wanting to be, you know, people want to be around people that are authentic. And we end up maximizing our potential by being authentic. And to me, that's, I, I, you don't need to put on a side the magnificence of who you are. is far greater than any fantasy you're going to put on yourself. So might as well just be yourself. I,
0: I totally agree with that. And that definitely resonates with me. I'm just going to play a little bit of devil's advocate. Now, you and I are both blessed because we are old enough where we lived in a, I'm 37 years of age. We lived in a time And we are old enough to appreciate life without the age of social media and even really the internet i mean when i when i tell my kids in a few years time there was once life without the internet or social media they're going to be gobsmacked they won't they won't believe me and even though i do think technology ai social media they're all things that could benefit us at the same time there's clear downsides which we'll probably get into being authentic is the younger generation the generation today will they find that harder to do because of social media and the impacts it has on their personal profile
1: well anytime you puff yourself up you're going to attract events to humble you to teach you how to be authentic your physiology your psychology the sociology around you will keep giving you feedback when you're not authentic to get you back to being authentic you know, when you just think about this way, if you got a customer and you puff yourself up and think you know better than the customer, the customer then withdraws, doesn't buy from your product, and humbles you. And then you get, uh, if you go too far the other way and you sacrifice for the for the customer and minimize yourself, you don't make a profit. So nature forces those through time. So even if people go on the social media as a vehicle, they're going to still learn through feedback that the one that's going to be the most sustainable is the one that's authentic. So we're, even with social media, we're going to still get that lesson. So I don't think we can avoid that. That we may be tempted, but we won't sustain. If we want to have sustainable, fair exchange with the world, which is what gives us the, the advantage, we're going to learn how to be ourselves and maximizing caring. You know, if we exaggerate ourselves and minimize others, we're careless. If we minimize ourselves and exaggerate others, we're careful. But if we, Equalize those. We're caring, and I always say that's what keeps rings on the Caring, not to careful or care less. So I, I'm a firm believer that nature is going to force you to get true over time. You can you can fake it for a while, and you think you can pull it off, but you get you get humbled on that. So I don't I don't waste my time on that. I I don't find that puffing myself up or beating myself up um, is where it's at. I, I'd rather self govern myself. I used to have when I was in practice. I, I learned, you know, indirectly I'd have this big day in practice years ago. This is 40 years ago. And I'd start to feel, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody. <laughs> and I would you know, be thinking about myself and I'm driving home and in my fancy car and and my wife would nail me. She just slammed me. You know, you didn't do this. She forgot that and everything else. I'd think, what's going on? She's toxic. And she wasn't toxic. I was just puffed up and she was doing her job to get me authentic, which is what relationships are about. And then I would have a down day the next day and I'd beat myself up But go, Whoa, what a day, what a hell of a day. And she'd lift me up. And so I was noticing my relationship was giving me feedback when I was above equilibrium. She brought me down when I was below equilibrium, she lifted me up. I also noticed that when I was up and cocky, I started having patients dismiss and cancel and, and they were humbling me. And then I started getting humble. I started thinking about my clients and focusing on them and then they'd come back in. So, I, I, I finally learned before I would go, go away from the office. If I felt puffed up, what client did I not care about it fully today? What, what name did I not remember? What birthday did not, I forget. What staff member did I think I created a checklist of things to go through if I felt puffed up to bring myself back into equilibrium. And the same thing in reverse, if I felt really down, I asked, well, who did I care about today? What did I accomplish? And I'd governed myself, and my business became stable. It was amazing to watch as I governed myself, my business became more stable. When I didn't, the world around me did. If you're not governing yourself from the inside, you're forced to be governed from the outside. People who govern from the inside become leaders. People that govern them from the outside become followers. You're either following a culture or building a culture. So people who have self-governance and live from an executive function, not just an amygdala, impulsive, and reactive state, they're the ones that end up have the most mastery, most authenticity, most fair exchange, and they end up being grateful for life. Hmm.
0: Something else I pulled off of um, I think even maybe your website. Um I'm not gonna read out exactly what it said, but my question to you is this, and it will probably trigger uh, it will probably trigger your own memory to know what I'm talking about. How do we
1: shine, not shrink? <laughs> We have a hierarchy of values, a set of values, a set of priorities that we live our life by. Mm-hmm. And that set of values is fingerprint specific, retinal pattern specific, unique to each of us. We are, And the, whatever is highest on our value, we spontaneously act on it. And whatever's low in our values, we need extrinsic motivation to get us to do. So we're inspired from within on the highest value, and we're having to need motivation from without on the lowest. The extrinsic motivation is way less effective than the intrinsic drive when we're doing something that's deeply meaningful and really inspiring to us. I love teaching. I don't need to be motivated to do that. I haven't had to be motivated for 50 years to do that. I do it every day. But to cook, you'd have to motivate me because I don't do that. Mm. Anything that's low on my values, I hire people to do. Because anything that I need to be reminded or motivated to do, I hire somebody <clears throat> and it's their love to do it. you want to surround yourself, with people that love to do the things you don't want to do. <clears throat> so anytime you're doing what's highest on your priority and you spontaneously do it, you will endure pain and pleasure in the pursuit of it. You will not see things as success and failure. You will see things as feedback to fulfill something deeply meaningful. And every time you achieve an incremental growth towards the objectives that you have, you will tend to want to expand that. And you will tend to expand your space and time horizons in the pursuit of ever something greater. But the second you do something low on your values, you'll, you you go into the amygdala. The blood supply goes in the amygdala, and you want immediate gratification. And, and if it's, it's difficult, you want to give up on it. You want to, and you get caught in the illusions of success and failure instead of meaning and purpose. And those people shrink because they want immediate gratification. So their space and time horizons become immediate needs, impulsive, compulsive, addictive behaviors. But people are living by their highest values. They think of long-term vision, they think of legacies, they think of contribution, they think of philanthropics. They think of what is it I can do that can make a difference in the world. And their uniqueness comes out and shines. So filling your day with the highest priority actions that awaken the space and time horizon expansions. You know, Seneca, the, the Roman poet said that the, we, we measure an individual by their most distant ends. How big is, is of space and time is their innermost dominant thought? What are they thinking of? Elon Musk is thinking in terms of decades and generations and centuries. The average person is thinking day to day, week to week. I always say that the the factory workers living day to day, the supervisors week to week, the lower management month to month, the middle management maybe for the year or quarter, the upper management for the year, the the CEO maybe thinking in terms of a generation, the visionary maybe thinking in terms of a century. But the sage is thinking in terms of millennium, they're thinking, what do I want to do that's going to change human beings over the next centuries? And I'm a firm believer that the magnitude of space and time in your innermost Dhamma thought determines the level of conscious evolution you've really obtained. And people who live by their highest priorities expand their awareness and potential. And they're the ones that contribute and exemplify what's possible of human beings.
0: Interesting points. Um... Going a little bit on the negative side, but I'm just trying to highlight certainly what's happening in some of the Western worlds, definitely, definitely in London. I feel like there's sometimes a bit of a split. You have people that are very successful on their mission. They're, they're, They're led by their North star and they're just, they're just laser focused. And if they're not uber successful right now, they have all the telltale signs, characteristics and traits they're gonna be because you could just see the patterns. Whereas other people, they seem to be falling victim to their own self-worth, their self-talk, their self-chatter, and they can't seem to get out of this kind of this rut. So my question to you is, why do people feel depression and why do people feel anxiety? And I'll just add on to that. I think we all feel it, but some people live there and some people touch on it and move on. Is there a big difference between depression and anxiety?
1: Yes. I define depression as a comparison of your current reality to a fantasy that you're addicted to. A fantasy that you're supposed to have life to be one sided, positive without negative, kind without cruel, nice without mean, generous without stingy. Anytime you think you're going to get a one-sided world, life's not going to give you that. And you're going to end up being depressed because you're holding on to an addictive fantasy about how life's supposed to be. It's unrealistic expectation. And so people have, there's 15 basic ones. The expectation that others are supposed to be one-sided, the expectation that those people are supposed to live in your values, the expectation of those combined, the expectation of you to be one-sided, the expectation of you to live outside your own values and live in somebody else's, because any time you infatuate with somebody and put them on a pedestal, you're going to want to live in their values to try to, because you fear the loss of them if you don't. Then the unrealistic expectation of those, uh, unrealistic expectation, the whole world's supposed to be one-sided, supposed to be peace without war and happy without sad and all one-sided and delusioned. And the unrealistic expectation, the whole world's supposed to live in your values, unrealistic expectation, a combination of those and all those above joined, the unrealistic expectation that some mechanical object, some computer or phone or ATM machine is supposed to live in your values. That's <laughs> supposed to read your mind. These delusions that people have compound and create frustrations because life's not matching the fantasy that we're addicted to. When you have realistic expectations, you know, I live, I have a set of values. If you expect me to live according to my values, I, I will not let you down. If you expect me to live according to your values, you're going to feel betrayed you're going to think I did it, but you've set yourself up for it because you have an unrealistic expectation. So anytime you don't know what your real values are and you expect yourself to live in somebody else's, you're going to end up beating yourself up and self depreciating. As, as Einstein said, if your cat wanting to swim like a fish, you're going to beat yourself up because you're not, you're not designed for that. Now anxiety is different. Anxiety comes from an event that occurs in your life that you have labeled negative, that you've now got a phobia, an avoidance instinct to avoid it. And then you've compounded over time various associations with it. They keep triggering the reminder of that until now you've got so many associations, you don't even know where they're coming from. And they remind you of an event that you've never seen the benefits to. And so you're holding on to this thing in your subconscious mind. Your hippocampus and amygdala are basically firing on an unconscious level. Mm-hmm. And then so all these stimuli are reminding you of it. So if you have a mom and dad that are fighting and your little baby, and, and your dad happened to wear blue jeans and had a brown mustache and brown hair, and you saw him getting aggressive with mom. And, and all of a sudden you see the next day in the grocery store with mom, a man comes by with brown hair and a, a brown mustache and blue jeans. He will automatically have an association. I don't trust this guy. I'm anxious. And you'll want to hide from mom or behind mom or in front of mom to protect mom. You'll do these acting out reactions. And these are basically associations that are stimuli that are reminding you of an original event that haven't been neutralized, that you haven't seen the blessings and benefits to in life. And the quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you ask. If you ask questions and see the upsides to things, you can clear out the original event and the cascading of the anxieties can be cleared. We do that every weekend in our programs. We dissolve people's anxieties. It's really not that difficult. People run the story and they want to run their story about being a victim. And if you stay a victim of history, you'll never be a master of destiny. Stop the story and let's figure out what the original event is. Let's go in and associate some upsides to it, balance it out, and stop the cascade.
0: Yeah. I mean, I really like that saying. Um, This is a perfect opportunity to ask you then. The Martini Institute and the Martini Method.
1: Tell me a bit more about these two things. Well, the Institute is, (laughs) I've been researching, writing, and teaching for over 50 years. So the, the organization that I have is the Demartini Institute. We we involved in research on human behavior and disseminating information. We have 80 plus courses and tons of, of interactive systems. And I mean, 1500 magazines we've put out information in and newspapers and television and movies and you name it. So we're constantly disseminating information in the form of human behavior. That's the Institute. The method is a developed method that I started back when I was 18, on how to find the hidden order in apparent chaos, how to take and show that no matter what's going on in your life, how to see it on the way, not in the way. So you're not victims of history, you're masters of destiny. And it's a series of very concise, very methodical questions to help you become aware of what you're unconscious of so you can be fully conscious. And uh, it's, it's, I mean, I, I just got through doing a training over the last five days, and we have thousands of different facilitators in many countries around the world using this, psychologists and, consultants you name it people in government people in business there's lots of people using it millions of people using it
0: yeah powerful stuff um i want to ask you a small question which is part of a a larger thing i was going to ask you and i know this is not always the most tasteful question but you know when you type in someone's name into the internet you get stuff like wikipedia you get loads of different stuff and typically what comes up is net worth and i like to click that And when i asked the the guest, i want to see how accurate it is so i've got here from idle net worth that they said that your net worth which was recorded back in 2020 according to them was 25 million dollars how accurate is that about half (laughs) all right okay so you're 69 years of age you're worth call it 50 million dollars thereabouts you've read over 30 of thousand books you're an author to over 40 uh, books you help a lot of people worldwide why do you continue this 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 journey why do you come on to things like this like podcasts why do you keep on going why don't you just retire <laughs>
1: That's a funny question you know i live on a ship and i travel all over the world on my ship i'll be i'm off right now because my wife my my daughter's getting married but uh but I'll be back on there in a few days. But uh, I was a, in, in, in first grade, my teacher told me in front of my parents, I'm afraid your son has got learning difficulties. He'll never be able to read. He'll never be able to write. He'll never communicate effectively, never probably go very far and amount to much. And I did have a learning problem. I didn't read till I was 18. And I had a speech problem. I was going to a speech pathologist by the time I was a year and a half old. I did have challenges. And they were with me until I was 17. And I almost died at 17. And a gentleman I met named Paul Bragg one night at a little class I happened to go to, which I never went to class, but I somehow was led to this class, um, inspired me to believe that maybe I could overcome my learning problems and learn how to speak properly and and become able to read. Because that wasn't that wasn't my capacity at the time. And with the help of my mom, I eventually moved from Hawaii. I was, I was living by, I left home when I was 13. I was a street kid. So but by the time I turned 18, I moved back home. And my mom and my dad said, why don't you take a GED, which is a high school equivalency test. And I actually passed that thing guessing, literally closing my eyes and just putting a dot there. And then I tried to go to school and I failed. I got a 27, I needed a 72 to pass. And I was about to give up on my dream about being a teacher and learning how learning how to be intelligent someday. And my mom saw me crying on the living room floor and she said, what happened? And I said, well, mom, I blew the test. I guess I'll never read, write, or communicate. I don't think i never go very far in life. And she paused for a second. Then she put her hand on my shoulder and she said, son, you become a great teacher and travel the world like you dream. but you go back and ride giant waves as a surfer, which is what I was doing at the time or return to the streets. We just want to let you know that your dad and I are going to love you no matter what. Cause they knew I had learning problems. I then put my hand into a fist. I looked up and I saw a vision that I saw the night I met Paul Bragg of speaking in front of a million people. And I said, I'm going to master this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to master this thing called teaching. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance and pay whatever price to give my service of love across the planet. I hugged my mom. I got to hug my mom. I walked into my room, I got a dictionary out and I started memorizing a dictionary, 30 words a day. And my mom would test me on 30 words. I had to, I would write the entire uh, the word with a sentence, 20 times. I would recite it 20 times. I would th- uh, and, and I And I would just memorize 30 words a day. And my mom would test me on 30 words a day until I was able to pronounce them, understand the meaning of them. And, and eventually grow my vocabulary. Over the next two years, it went over 20,000 words I put in my brain and I started to excel and I went back to school and I excelled and became a scholar. And then since that day when I learned how to read, I've never stopped. And because I started to have students come up to me and started gathering around and wanting to ask questions, that never stopped. Now I've gotten to speak in 193 countries. And I'm still working on every country. I still got 20 something countries to go. And so I, I'm on a mission. This It's not a job for me. I don't need to do it. I don't need the money for it. It's a mission. And some people don't comprehend that. But when you find some mission, you don't give a crap about what most people do. You know, I do it seven days a week. People, they say, well, you know, you know, you're going 18 hours a day. Yeah. Because you can, you can do it. So it's a meaningful thing to me, as you probably can tell.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a it's a very very um, compelling backstory, you know, life that you 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 have got and, and had, John. Um, so, okay, some people from an outs- from an outside perspective will be like, "Well, this guy's traveled all around the world. Now he's very very intelligent. He's worth fifty million dollars. He's got it all." So, how do you get your kicks today? Like when you're
1: doing what you do best? What is the thing that really stimulates you? Researching and discovering another piece of the cosmic jigsaw puzzle piece, putting it into place where I know it fits and it's certain. It aligns with the principles of the universe. And then sharing that with a group of people and seeing light bulbs go on and seeing people go, I got it. And they take off and they could do something extraordinary with it. One of the things that inspires me is the letters I get daily from students around the world that's done extraordinary things grammy award winners or people that done or just got an olympic medal or something you know or build a bu- business or or pass school i don't know what it is but it's whatever's meaningful they had a child that they've been trying to have anything like that i get those daily and that's what keeps me inspired
0: yeah amazing amazing i mean i get occasionally a little dm here and there from one of our podcasts uh the audience and there'd be nothing like what you're getting. But even that gives me a feel good factor. It gives, gives me
1: satisfaction. How, how, how can you not do that? Mm. You know, when I ask people, I just did finished a program last night. And I asked people, go to a moment where and when you perceive you've had the most fulfillment in your life. Yeah. And I had them go and do that. Yeah. And I said, and tell me if it's not a moment when you did something with your skills and your service that made a difference in somebody's life. And they turned around and you could tell that they were impacted by it. And they were grateful for that. And every hand went up. That was the bottom line. So why, why do anything less than what is most meaningful, most fulfilling? And to me, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you want to spend your time doing something less fulfilling in your life? Why not make that your life? Yeah, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you most people have Monday morning blues, Wednesday hump days, thank God it's Fridays and week friggin ends. And they basically have a vocation separated from their vacation. And they, so they're, they're working to make money to escape that, to go and spend it on something. And then they have to go back to work and they're in this duality schizophrenic life. And that's totally unnecessary. You can actually do something you absolutely love to do and find a way of doing it in a way that's compensatory, and a sustainable and fair exchange and go and build a fortune doing exactly what you love to do. Well, I'm absolutely. Well, well, John, this is actually
0: going to be my next question and it's kind of connected. So, your students, your customers, your clients, people that come and use your services, use your brand and your methods. What type of profile are they typically or or is there multiple different uh, type of people and connected to what you were just saying? How do these people, these, these students, find their purpose? How do they find that thing that really gets them up in the morning and gives
1: them all the energy that they need to crack on with their life and their work? Yes, that's a very important question. Everybody has a set of priorities, a set of values. Whatever is the very top value. I have a value determination process on my website, drdmartin.com. It's free, it's complimentary, it's private. I hope everybody takes advantage of it because it's it's a it's it's a goal mine if you do it. But if you go through there and look at what is really truly most important, what your life demonstrates, not the fantasies, not the social idealisms, not the things you wish and fantasize about, but what your life demonstrates that you're committed to doing, that you don't have to be reminded to do, that you spontaneously do on a daily basis, it's meaningful. And narrowing that down because our highest value, our telos, as Aristotle called it, is the very core axis of our teleological purpose and the thing that's most deeply meaningful. It's also our ontological identity—the thing we revolve; we, our life revolves around. It's also our epistemological pursuit where we're going to have the greatest excellence. Finding out what that is is the first step, and narrowing that down, because with that, your blood glucose and oxygen in goes into the executive center, and executive function takes over, where you have governance on yourself, and you're not swayed by impulses and instincts of the amygdala and going for immediate gratifications. You're now looking at a long-term dream in your life that you're willing to build incremental momentum to achieve. So first starting with the very highest value and identifying a service that you would love to do that's deeply meaningful, that brings a tear to your eye, even thinking about getting up and doing. That's the first step. The purpose automatically is just an articulation of what it is that's so deeply meaningful that you can't wait to get up in the morning and do it. Because when you can't wait to do it, people can't wait to get the service.
0: I can ask a bit of a silly, silly question, but it's me uh, being from probably a different walk, walk of life to, to you being a south londoner and you know you know got loads of different stories anyway um being a doctor okay being a doctor is a bit like being verified now on social media right when you've got that blue tick everyone like sort of kind of treats you differently because they see you as a verified person but back in the day you and i both experienced life without having that social media instagram being verified but being a doctor is kind of the same thing you know when we've had doctors walk into our gallery for example for some reason you just you know feel that they're professional they're educated they're wealthy they've got a great network and they're they're normally very very detailed individuals what does it mean to be a doctor for you john
1: i always thought of a doctor as being a teacher personally that, that's that's what comes to my mind and um when i went to professional school uh, I was going to, st- I was studying more than one. I was studying uh, a bit of medicine. I was studying astronomy. I was studying different things because I'm sort of a and, uh And it, it, it's basically a minimum amount of rigor and accountability to make sure that you have some basic knowledge. But my learning, the, 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 the 10 years or so for the, co- the, the doctorate degree, uh, compared to my 50 years of research, I've done more research, way more on my own than I ever did in formal schooling. So it it becomes less uh, of a significance that formal education to me as you go along, because you're you learn the real world out there. But you know, you it's a basic minimum amount of, of 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 education and rigor that you do to at least establish you have some knowledge in a certain field. That's the value of it. But I can't guarantee that guarantees you anything. I know been, people that have that floundered in many areas of their life and they had doctorate degree. I knew a guy that had seven doctorate degrees, seven and floundered because he wasn't, it wasn't business oriented. He didn't have a way of communicating what he had knowledge wise in a way of serving people. So he was just knowledge and it was kind of, he died with it. So it's not just the doctorate degree or whatever that is meaningful. It's how you apply it, what you do with it. To me that's, yeah. you, if you don't have a doctor degree, but you go out and do something extraordinary with the world and make a difference in the world and transform people's lives, that's just as honorable as far as I'm concerned. Or if you've done something that's not any doctor degree, but you've spent and, and persevered towards something that's, um, uh, you know, you just put your heart and soul into it, became masterful. Can I can I share a story that that, that I, I just, it's kind of left field, but I'm going to share this if you
0: can. Yeah, yeah, far away.
1: I was four years old, My dad owned a plumbing business and I used to go and love spending time with my dad at the plumbing business, right? To be with my dad. And uh, he would usually send me out on the trucks with the plumbers to go repair, to, to do some repair work or do some construction work with the plumbers. Well this one day he said, today I want you to go off with Jesse, Jesse Carter. And I said, well, okay. Isn't he the ditch digger? And he said, yes, he's the ditch digger. I want you to spend the day with him. And my first response is, I, I'd rather be with a plumber, but if he wants me to do it, I'll, I'll be with the ditch digger. My dad had a, a lot of wisdom and he and he put me out on this truck with, with Jesse Carter. We go to this house, it's a house had been there probably over 35 years and it needed a new water main from the main to the house, because it had rusted. And our job was to put a new water main. Well, Jesse went out there and took a, a, a two sticks with strings between it and lined it up so it was a perfect line between the point of where the main is to the house. He then took a T-bar and he went down through the grass and and went and probed down about a foot to make sure there's no tree roots, rocks, cement, or anything that would block the pathway. Because if, if we do, it's gonna we're going to have to get through that to put a ditch in. He then watered it so that we've got just the right texture when you're doing a, a ditch. And then he showed me how to, to do a sharpshooter, to be able to turn a sod. But before he did, he put paper along the side of the line of the rope. So I turned the sod, I'd go down with the sharpshooter, I would turn the sod over onto the paper and then another three inch, and then I'd turn it over and I laid them line top of each other all along. He showed me how to do this. And then we dug this ditch exactly the right depth. We leveled it with a level, we put in the pipe, we attached the pipe to the front, to the main, to the, the house, did a perfect attachment, a perfectly level system. And he says if there's any dips, water will rust and it won't last as long. It won't last 30, 40 years. And then we covered it back up and put the grass back on there, watered it, ruffled up the grass. You could not tell we were there there was no mud, there was no mess, there was, it was perfect. And he watered it and, and sodded it, put it back down. So you would never know that somebody had been in there. And then we left. Now, Jesse was driving me back. And he said this, he says, I have the greatest job in the world, the most important job in the world. Without water, people die. Church. I bring water Church. to people. Wow. I thought that was amazing how he, how he framed it. Yeah. He's a He had an eighth grade education. He had eight kids He lived in a small little house, but he had the greatest job in the world because I bring water to people without water, they die. They can't wash, they can't eat. They can't wash food. They can't, they can't do anything. He says, and my job is to do such a perfect job that they call the office and complain that we never came there. So your dad has the opportunity to say, go out and look at the main. And then they're astonished and they're going, I've never had a plumber come there without a, making a mess and leaving a mound. And we have, we have to, we can't mow for months. And he said, it was a pride in workmanship. He He wanted to make sure that it was the best job that a plumber could ever do, a ditch digger could ever do. And he was an inspired man with an eighth grade education. And my dad wanted me to go and study with him. That man still has an impact on my life. 65 years later, because he was a man of excellence, a man of a mission. He didn't, he didn't have the education, didn't have a doctorate degree. He had a doctorate degree in how to dig a ditch after doing thousands of them to perfection. So that's why I said, I'm not sure that it's always the doctorate the formal education, so, because sometimes the, the greatest wisdom comes from the least likely mind, sometimes.
0: Yeah, I've seen plenty of that in my lifetime. And it's a really, really good point you've just made there, because regardless of whether you're a doctor or a plumber, I think you get recognized for your standards. And this guy you just referred to is had very, very high standards as a plumber. Is that part of your teaching as well, John?
1: Like to your students, have high standards that people recognize well, minus that. The highest standard, you know, you can jump off bungee jumps, you can do uh, fire walks, you can do all kinds of stuff for courage. Those are, to me, insignificant compared to the courage of being yourself. Mm. In a world that wants you to, to fit in, to stand out and be yourself, to me, that's the standard. It's not necessarily, you know, you got to have this standard and that standard as far as that. But Because if you're committed to being excellent there, because the true authentic you has a standard of excellence, the real you. It's the facaded you that exaggerates and minimize yourself. When you exaggerate yourself with pride, you set too big a goal and too small a timeframe to humble you. And if you set too small a goal with too long a time frame, when you're shamed, you eventually get lifted up. So nature is forcing you into authentic states, which is where the maximum excellence is. That's where you maximize your epistemological wisdom, and you get to apply it in a way that serves people in such a fair exchange that people can't wait to be around you to do it. So, I'm a firm believer that that's the standard. The standard of excellence comes from the standard of being authentic. Um,
0: random question, but I've never met anyone that lives on the ship. Why do
1: you live on the ship, John? (laughs) In 1999, I saw in the Rob report sitting in a dentist office. I believe a dentist or some doctors, I think it was a dentist, a Rob report. And in there, I was flipping through it. And I saw this this advertisement for the world, this condominium ship, the one and only thing. It's only been, you know, I've never seen anything like it before and everything, but it was only 27% occup- occupied or purchased so far. It hadn't launched yet, but there'd been 27%. I thought it's a little early, I'll keep an eye on it. I thought that's cool because I've said since I was, 18, when I read Albert Einstein's, one of his books, he said, I'm a citizen of the world. I'm not a man of my family, my community, my city, my state, or my nation. I'm a citizen of the world. And I I put that into my brain. I'm a citizen of the world. The universe is my playground. The world is my home. Every country is a room and a house. Every city is a platform to share my heart and soul. So that's, I've been saying that, that statement since I was 18. So that's always been there. Then 2001 came, we were living in truck tower in Manhattan, right underneath the Donald. And uh, 9-11 came and all of a sudden they shut down the building. I was on my way flying to Australia at the time. My wife was there and on the streets, stuck on the streets because they shut the building down. So she had to get a helicopter to take her to Philly and Philly, she flew privately out to LA and LA over to Australia where we had some homes there. And she said, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to chill out. I'm not going to go back to New York for a while. Well, I said, well, I'm not scheduled to be here to speak in in, uh, in Australia, but four times this year, I'm not going to see you unless we figure out some plan B. And another friend of ours had a, a, a husband who had purchased on the world and happened to be in Sydney that, that night. We had dinner with him. And I asked him all these questions because he went and did the due diligence on the ship. And on the next morning as an anniversary present, I bought it for my wife as an a condominium on the ship. And that was in 19 or 2001. October, 2001, right after 9-11. so I've been 22 years now. Almost
0: so, 22. so I'm just trying to experience living on a ship. So we're not talking about a yacht. We're talking about a ship. How big is this ship?
1: It's about 675 length, 675 feet long, about 119 foot wide and 12 stories high. There's 100 people that live on there. We have There's 100 of us that live on there and, and there's 309 staff on average. It's the best address I've been able to find on Earth. It's it's just fantastic.
0: And then, so I've been on, you know, one or two cruises, and obviously been on people's yachts and stuff. Um, you know, the the movement of the boat. It, I mean, I guess you just get
1: used to it. But when you come back on on land, are you are you kind of rocking around, John? No, no, no. We have a incredible stabilizers on it. We only get a little wobble when we're in big seas, really big seas you know, over 10 foot doesn't mean anything, 20, you might get a bit of a wobble, 35 you might get a bit, but we don't, we normally dodge where there's waves. You know, we, we, we are the ones that decide where we go. It's, 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 it's a voted on where are we going in the world? It goes from the Arctic to the Antarctic, anywhere in the world where there's water we go. And so, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a group of adventurous individuals that have done extraordinary things in the world. And they, 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 they that's the lifestyle they want. And it's a fantastic, it's an educational lifestyle because we've got Nobel Prize winners on there. We have education on there constantly. We have events. we got got excursions. Discovery Channel comes on and we go do amazing excursions in Antarctica or the Greenland or whatever it is, Borneo or someplace. A learning experience of, of amazing people that have done some amazing things, going to amazing places. Best, best address I can find.
0: I, I know there's a lot of cliches. Cliche cliche sayings out there such as your network determines your net worth and all of these great sayings um what's the other one you need people that radiate you rather than drain you and and all that kind of stuff but in your own words john you know a man who's very very successful travel around the world speaking etc the right people in your network give me some personal kind of experiences i know you gave me a story earlier but in your own opinion how important is it to have the right network around you
1: well i i don't want to say that you're dependent on the network around you because you can build one you can build a network of people by by sharing things that help people build amazing lives and then build a network of that a culture but i do believe in my life i've been standing on the shoulders of a lot of people um the first probably amazing individual was meeting Howard Hughes when I was 14. Then uh, I met Timothy Leary when I was 14. And I then I met all these famous surfers and I met all these musicians, B.B. Uh, King and Buddy Miles and T- Ted Nugent and all these different and Led Zeppelin people. I met all these people when I was in teenage. So I've had a, for some reason, I've been at the right place at the right time to meet the right people uh, because of the way I had to live my life. And then I started, when I started reading I started reading, I, I went through all the great Greek philosophers. I went through all the Nobel prize winners, all the great mystics from the East, Chinese philosophers. I've been, I, I, I prioritize what I feed my mind. I prioritized who I associate with. I made a list of, so anybody that had global influence I want to hang out with. So I prioritize that and, and organize my life to be around that. So I, I do believe that that has an influence, but I also realized that my job wasn't just to subordinate to that. My job was to contribute to that and to try to help build people that were global thinkers. So that's, I think, why people come to the classes. They, they want to be able to make a contribution on a global level around the world. So I've done everything I can by extracting what I've observed and then sharing as whatever I can to help people do that. i want wanted this, to do that.
0: Uh, that's the dream I had. And listening to a few of your podcasts, even this morning, John, um, you talk a lot about the law of attraction, writing down a gratitude list, you know, writing down things which are essentially things that you're proud of, but also maybe some goals, things that you can gravitate towards. um I do slightly feel not with your message, but with the law of attraction message, some people know it, believe it, and share it in a right way. but then there's these other type of gurus out there that kind of just share that message because it sounds good, but they don't really have the science behind it. What is the science behind the law of attraction,
1: John? No, that's a great question and if a perfect summary. I feel exactly the same way. <laughs> There's a lot of fluffy stuff out there. You know, I had a lady that, after the movie The Secret came out, a lady came up to me and she says, Dr. D. Martini, I've 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 read the book six times. I've watched the movie 20 times and I go out to my mailbox. And why is there no million dollars in my mailbox? <laughs> I said, have you considered getting off your butt and going and doing something to contribute to people's lives enough to be you able know, people will want to pay for it. And then you take a portion of that after you pay your bills and taxes and save and invest that to build your wealth. Cause that will get you there. <laughs> Ground yourself. I mean, this is ridiculous. Some of the stuff that people come up with. So I'm not into, you know, the fluffy stuff. That's just not, I think that's a disservice to people, but I do believe that we all have a set of priorities. And if we pursue goals that are truly deeply meaningful, that are our goals, not something we think because we compare ourselves to others and think, oh, we should do this, or I want to be like that, envying somebody, trying to imitate somebody, but a real goal that's really deeply meaningful. And that could be raising a beautiful family. That could be building a business. I don't care what it is. It's the thing that's true to you. If you go and pursue that, you will increase the probability of actually perceiving opportunities taking the actions that it takes to get the outcome and be patient now consistently incrementally build momentum towards achieving it you know i i don't i don't like the idea there's an overnight success i think that's an illusion i, I sometimes people have you know great opportunities and they they're focused on things but i find that most people are are consistent and methodical and patient and and you know they do things and they keep building up a momentum you know, when I think of uh, long-term patience pays off. Media gratification usually costs people and people want the quick fix. And I don't find that to be the key. So I'm a, you know, I, I could say, I, I set a goal to go to every country on the face of the earth. When I was 17, I had a dream to do that. I'm at 193. I still got 20 something to 30, almost 30 to go. Okay. Well, 50 years, I'm I'm a slow friggin' achiever.
0: <laughs>
1: Probably take me 60 years or more, maybe 70. Well, I could say I'm a failure because I'm not, it's taken me 70 years to go to every country in the world and speak, but I'm not going to give up on it. I'm just going to keep doing it, and and I'm not stopping. And and if I have to come back with a Ouija board, you know, in the afterlife, I'll do it. You know, whatever it takes. But the point is, people want a quick fix instead of a long-term, deeply meaningful life. I always say, money without meaning leads to debauchery. Money with meaning leads to philanthropy. And philanthropy is a love of human beings. And, and everybody's a reflection of you. If you don't love people around you, you're not loving part to you. I'd rather be of contribution. I, I, that's just way more meaning. I don't mean sacrifice. I don't mean altruistic. I believe I deserve something for it. But if sustainable, fair exchange of service, and, and if you do that and it's meaningful, and you can't wait to master what it is you do, uh, the law of attraction is really the law of perseverance. You do attract, people, places, things, ideas, and events based on what your innermost dominant thought is uh, if you stay with it over time. I mean, I, I had a dream I I wrote down 50 celebrities I want to meet when I was 20 something. I met all 50 of those people. And I was, I mean, literally, I ran into them in these serendipitous ways um, that was just mind blowing. But I, I I read it and I focused on it and I and I definitely manifested it. But I also did action steps every day that increased the probabilities and odds that I was doing that, because I was going on writing books and going on television and there's a higher probability of running into them. I was going to nicer restaurants where they happened to go to to eat. You know, there were there were it wasn't mystical. It wasn't some esoteric thing that made it happen. I was doing the action steps that increased the probability of achieving things by persevering towards something that was meaningful to me. And I tell people that's way more probable than some fantasy, esoteric outcome.
0: Yeah, super message. Here's my last question, okay? I came up with my own mantra, John, when I first got into business for myself. And the mantra goes like this, be happy, never content. Now, I've got my own interpretation of what that means. But if I were to ask Dr. John Martini, what does be happy, never content mean to you?
1: Well, I, I don't use the word happiness normally, but unless you define it like uh, Aristotle did, eudaimonia well-being, because hedonistic happiness is transient at best and misleading usually. But fulfillment, I like the word fulfillment, but that still can mean happiness. It's just a semantic word. I'm not a man of success. I'm not a man of failure. I don't live in those worlds. I'm a man on a mission. And I use both of those as a depurposing, repurposing cycle of feedback to get me to fulfill what my mission is. But content means I I think if you go and do something that's deeply meaningful to you, you're grateful, but there's no end to it. A goal is in space and time, but a purpose is through space and time. I don't uh, don't have this idea that I'm going to be done. I, you know, I, I, I probably on the last day of my life, I'll probably be doing a seminar, most likely, and hope anyway. But you know, um, but I, I don't think like because people, I, I I met this guy when I was, uh, let's see, 28 in New York at the Marriott Marquis in New York. I was speaking to five thousand people, and there's a guy standing in front of me. There were six people about to go up and do a 20 minute presentation. We're all in line. We're going to give our best 20 minutes on how to, you know, expand your your achievements. And the guy in front of me said, this is the day I've been waiting for my entire life. I finally arrived. I'm finally successful. And I thought that's interesting. That means he has a small repertoire of experience and he has a narrow, a very small goal. Cause if this is it, in my mind, I was thinking this is just the beginning of a hundred thousand of these. <laughs> in my mind, this was a stepping stone, but not the end in all. Hmm. He stopped speaking. He didn't, that you didn't see him after that. I'm still speaking. So the magnitude of space and time in your most dominant thought will determine the level of conscious evolution you've obtained. And when you do, you'll be grateful for all the steps, but you won't be attached to any of them. Lovely stuff. So contentment, contentment is the opportunity to continue to do what you love doing on a daily basis, but no stopping. Good stuff. Thank you very much for,
0: for your time, John. Um, I'm obviously going to be following you very, very closely, uh, as as I have been anyway. And hopefully I'll get to see you and Mayfair in our, in our in our gallery in the next uh, few weeks or months. Well, thank you very Perfect. much for your time. I hope the audience has got a lot of value out of this. Be happy, never content. And once again, John, I really, really appreciate your time here today.
1: No, thank you. Thank you for the great questions. Appreciate it.